0: I've always wished for more artistic talent. Well, murder can be an art too. The power to kill can be just as satisfying as the power to create. Do you realize we've actually done it exactly as we planned? And not a single infinitesimal thing has gone wrong. It was perfect. Yes. An immaculate murder. We've killed for the sake of danger and for the sake of killing. We're alive truly and wonderfully alive even champagne isn't equal to us or the occasion i'll take it though
1: from chicago this is the unenthusiastic critic a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time And welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic I'm Michael McDonough I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com With me today is a woman of such intellectual and cultural superiority That she's completely above the traditional moral concepts of good and evil My lovely wife, Nakia Also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic Hello How are you today, dear?
2: I'm fine, how are you?
1: I'm (laughs) alright On today's episode, Nakia and I are sitting down for her first viewing of Alfred Hitchcock's Rope from 1948 Nikia we'll talk about the movie in a few minutes, but first, I thought we would talk a little bit about murder.
3: Mm.
1: How do you feel about murder?
2: How do I feel about murder? Um, So it's a sin.
1: Oh, really? You're starting there? I'm going
2: to start there. It's a sin. Okay. Morally,
1: <laughs>
2: I do not believe that any person has the right to take someone else's
1: life. In any circumstance. Well, that's not what I said. Okay. Well, um, sort of.
2: Well, okay. Asterisk.
1: I mean, yeah, Quaker.
2: There are instances of self-defense and things like where, you know, you got to hmm. do what you got to do. Zombie apocalypse, I guess. But, yeah, in general, <laughs> life is very precious and I don't think we should just be murdering each other.
1: What if someone really, really pisses you off?
2: Again, still not my right. Ideally, the universe will take care of that person. I don't have to do anything because you know yeah, the, universe like the, the universe. will act accordingly. Needs a little
1: goose once in a while, and to,
2: you know, fix restore the balance. Mm-hmm. But it is not my role to act out. Okay, case.
1: so that was that was the moral yes. argument. Mm-hmm. The I,
2: there's also the astrological argument, which is I'm a Pisces and we are not I don't think we're known to be I wonder if you did like a
1: Star survey
2: of, of murderers, how many Pisces would be in there. I don't think I don't think we murder.
1: Now I'm curious, what do you think is the most murderous sure. zodiac sign? I'm
2: not sure. Aries maybe? I'm not sure.
1: I dated a Scorpio once. She was pretty hostile.
2: Scorpios probably, yeah. I mean, we're we're very forgiving people. <laughs> we hold grudges like a bitch, but we're very forgiving. <laughs> And just sensitive, and we don't...
1: Forgive, yeah, but don't never
2: forget. Never forget. We're very sensitive.
1: Okay, moral, mm-hmm. intellectual, mm-hmm. astrological. Sure. What about emotional? Do you do you go through life wanting to murder people? Yes. Because I do, as not you as, well know. Not
2: as often as you, but I do have thoughts sometimes. So here's the thing. Part of me, if I'm being really honest with myself... I don't murder... And all of us. Right. I don't murder because I know I won't get away with it. And this is why. (laughs) Because I would never be the premeditated murderer. I am crime of passion murderer. I am...
1: Which is most murders. Which is most murders.
2: So it would be messy. It would not be well thought Mm -hmm. out. And I would have to be doing a lot of cleanup on the back end because I didn't plan on the front end. (laughs) So that's probably what keeps me from doing it. Is it would be like somebody that I had been living with, like my husband,
1: who wait, I'm sorry, you you, you, you slept loudly you slept something or something, in and there so that and I for like 15 years,
2: I've been listening to this person chew loudly, and then one night I just snap and I stab you with a fucking fork. And that I do would not
1: be, chew loudly. Li- no, be this wait a minute, end. your
2: jaw sort of clicks a little bit. <laughs> so and that would be the end. Like that would I would it, I would just like flash red and <laughs> you would die by fork and then it would be like a lot of blood and a lot of mess and how do you, okay, I got to fix this and you got to get rid of the body and it, it's a whole thing. So...
1: I gotta be honest, I feel like you get the right jury, you're gonna get away with that.
2: What right jury in the world would not convict a black woman oh, yeah, who murdered true. a white man? That's
1: if you were white and you got the right jury, you could get away with that.
2: Possibly. <laughs> I would have to like make up something like you beat me or something. Like it would have to be it would have to see again, it would require thought at the front end that I have not done. Because I have no intentions of murdering you, but i what I'm saying is if I were to murder you, it would be in this moment of just like absolute mental and emotional break. So
1: Okay, I just I want to caution you <laughs> that now our millions of listeners <laughs> right. are all witness yes. to mm-hmm. the fact mm-hmm. that you have put a lot of thought yes. into the
2: six people listening to this show. Me. I have not. Again, I have not put thought into it. I know what it would be about. <laughs> I have not put thought into it.
1: Okay, let's 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 talk in in larger terms here for a okay. moment. I was I was looking at some stats. Mm-hmm. Okay, murder is and always has been a global sport. Yes. In 2017, which was the year I found stats available for, some 400,000 people worldwide were the victims of homicide. Which isn't really that many. It's it's less than 1% Mm -hmm. of all global deaths were murders. To put it in perspective of non-disease-related deaths, obviously most of them are Mm disease-related, three times as many people die in car accidents as are murdered, and twice as many die from suicide. Murder, however, does kill more people than drownings, (laughs) fires, accidental poisonings, drug overdoses... And, surprisingly, war. (laughs) And homicide is the leading cause of death for people between the ages of 15 and 49, who presumably are too young to die from something else. Right. Oh, and by the way, contrary to popular opinion, Chicago is not the murder capital of America. No. It's not even in the top 30 American cities, which, frankly, I feel means we're just not trying hard enough.
2: Well, I mean, this this is not what this is about, right, though, but... (laughs) The whole idea that we live in an unsafe country is just, uh, crime rates are down in most places. They, they are. Summer, they're so.
1: hugely down. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's just fear-mongering.
1: But okay. And this is sort of what I wanted to talk about, because I think, I think murder probably occupies a greater position in the cultural imagination mm-hmm. than is probably warranted. Sure. I mean, there aren't that many murders, and 99% of the murders that do occur are not. Interesting. They're just what you were there. Yeah. The wife who stabs her husband in the head with a fork for, you know, <laughs> chewing too loud.
2: He had it coming a common sort of scenario. Yeah.
1: Right. And yeah. And I haven't done the math on this, and I couldn't find stats on this. What percentage of plots in novels, movies, and TV shows do you think incorporate murder? Oh, I would say like it's got to be like half. Yeah, at least. At least. Right? I was
2: I would say like eighty percent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like,
1: <laughs> like even stuff that isn't about murder it yeah. has a murder in it yes. somewhere. If I told you I'm writing a new screenplay, and you said, what's it about? And I said, oh, it's about a murder. Mm -hmm. Is there anything less imaginative than that that I could say? No.
2: No. Other than, I guess, a love story. I mean, that's boring.
1: Well, half of those incorporate murder Murder, and and murder as well. (laughs) Twofer. So, So what is that? Why are we so fascinated by it?
2: I don't know. I mean, I think... There is a little bit of mystery around it or a little bit of um, intrigue because it's, again, it's one of the most, if not the most, transgressive behaviors we can mm-hmm. engage in. And so the question is, like, how does someone get to that point? Like, what, what pushes someone to the point where they are making that choice? particularly folks that like planet, like that takes that. Something has gone wrong.
1: (laughs) We're in a place at that point.
2: So I think there's, which which
1: is what we're going to be talking about. Right.
2: So I think it's, I think because it is the taboo of taboos, right. Is like to take a life. Mm -hmm. And so I think many of us would like to think we are incapable of it. And so there's maybe some interest around like, well, how does someone become a murderer? How does someone decide that they are going to murder? I think
1: that's probably true.
2: And what would it take for me to
3: do that.
1: I mean, when we talk, I think it was when we talked about Dog Day Afternoon, mm-hmm. we just talked about the fascination with crime in general. Mm-hmm. And I remember you were saying that part of it was that we all think we're one bad day away from going crazy and just robbing a bank and taking off. And I think that's true of murder, too. Mm -hmm. I think we all think that, you know, we're just one loud meal away from getting a fork in the head or from stabbing somebody in the head.
2: Well, it's because it's right. It's like it's one of those instances where you realize how delicate the social fabric is hmm So, here's a really trivial example that I came home bitching about last night. Okay. I was on the train. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and there was a gentleman... Wait, we
1: need to insert a trigger warning yeah. here, I think.
2: This is gross. There was a gentleman sitting across from me, excavating his <laughs> nose... <laughs> So the point where he was, like, up his fucking brain. <laughs> and, I, and I'm and i literally staring and, at him.
1: And pulling things out, pull, is what you like said. And, like,
2: visibly pulling things out, mm-hmm. like, string of snot coming out every time he pulls his finger out. And then he just puts his hand back on the seat, the L seat. And I... Who the hell? I just thought we had all decided (laughs) that that wasn't something we were going to do. You don't like clip your toenails on the train. Social fabric
1: depends. You
2: don't dig in your nose. There's a social
1: contract that says we don't do that. We have agreed,
2: right? That that there's just some shit that, in order for all of us to just move through a public space with the least amount of trauma, (laughs) we're just all going to (laughs) behave. A little bit differently than we would in our own homes.
1: And this guy was just deciding was just like, to disregard that rule. Future
2: murderer. Because he's already made a step. Okay? <laughs> he's already down the path of just like, you know what? It's like that thing where they say, you know, the only thing stopping a robber is like, it's just a pane of glass. That's the only thing separating mm-hmm. people right. on the outside from what's, what's valuable on the inside. It's just a pane of glass. It's not a lot. Mm-hmm. And so someone just has to decide or realize, hmm, that's just a pane of glass. I'm going to break
1: that pane going to break that
2: and I'm going to steal. So this like... Illusion of safety Illusion of social order Like that shit can break down quick man Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit Fascinating because it is It speaks to the more primal Parts of us that I think we think we have evolved Past Mm -hmm. but like all it takes Is digging in your nose on a train (laughs) Or The older woman I was sitting next to A couple weeks before who also infuriated Me who was yawning Obnoxiously (laughs) loud Ooh. Like no one yawns like that that's not a real yawn and then was doing it multiple times in a row she I imagined her death I imagined murdering her
1: yeah see I feel like there you're the one I would, who's getting you know that's fra- where start approaching yes. the line
2: I wish I had that like super arm strength where you just like shove somebody's head into a wall and you just like explodes <laughs> like a melon and I just saw myself doing it
1: Jesus
2: just and then and just you know and the blood gets all on your face and sort of in your mouth and you're just but there's peace on your face because you done it you've silenced no, <laughs>
1: no maybe. Way. maybe you should think about you know See, ubering to exactly. work or something i, I, I don't so this, but that's
2: just what i'm saying like that's how delicate the balance is every day it's very delicate i just need people to behave like we we got we agreed we all agreed
4: <laughs> that
2: we weren't going to do those things
1: <laughs> see this is why i'm in favor of gun control laws
2: yes no i because
1: have. if i was allowed yeah. to pack i well, would kill someone every are, are day are you really
2: saying pack <laughs> really <laughs> Let's pause there.
1: <laughs> if I went into the world strapped... Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you absolutely cannot. Like, I wouldn't I wouldn't make it a block no. before I'd shoot somebody. No,
2: somebody would be walking slowly in front of you, and you would <laughs> shoot them in the head. So, no, that wouldn't be a good idea for I'd
1: you. I'd be John wick in it out there.
2: John Wick... Had legitimate reasons for no, murdering okay. all those people.
1: No, and this is where I have trouble with your whole morality <laughs> argument because that you love those movies, and he's basically they the most prolific the dog serial killer in America. His
2: wife gave okay. him, and then they stole his car.
1: <laughs> that doesn't mean he can walk into the, a business as, and kill every single human being there. You
2: keep acting like he walked into a church and did, though he did shoot people in church. You keep okay. acting like he, yeah. you know, but, but it was a church that was like run by the mob. They were like holding money and shit for the mob. So, and the club yeah. was owned by the mob. Mm. So, those were bad people. They were not yeah. good people. I,
1: I, I'm sure the girl who worked in the coat check room probably she knew to where get she her head was
2: working. Mm. So, <laughs> no.
1: Okay. So, we've been talking about rage, but you mm-hmm. you said you would not be capable of premeditation. Uh-uh. You don't You don't think you could plan the perfect murder? I, you and I are pretty, you know, relatively smart people. Yeah. I, I've always felt like if I put my mind to it, I could plan the perfect murder. I haven't done that, for the record.
2: I, I think a lot of people think that they are smart and that they could get away with something, but couldn't. <laughs> so you remember we were watching that HBO documentary on Robert Durst, who had been murdering <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for like decades. Yeah,
1: and getting away with
2: it. And getting away with it. Mm-hmm. Like some close calls, but getting away with it. <laughs> so he's doing this documentary he goes to the bathroom forgets he's miked and is in there like oh they got you now pal they totally like, figured out what did you
1: do one. Kill them all you killed
2: them all they got you now thought he was brilliant fucking admitted to it in the bathroom because he forgot he was miked so everybody thinks they're brilliant until they make that one stupid mistake I mean I think the true genius of murder and again this goes back to Hannibal no body no crime so you either gotta eat it <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're gonna
2: find some way to get rid of the fire.
1: <laughs> okay, well that po- that poses some problems for you though, because you are not gonna eat meat. No, I
2: am not gonna eat meat. So you don't, no, I I won't be doing that.
1: And even if you were, you see what I eat, and I don't believe yeah, you're I would gonna not ingest. want that inside of me. No.
2: no, no, I would need to feed you to others. So it would be a Hannibal sort of dinner party where I would not be partaking <laughs> in the meal. It would be, you know. Aria feeding Walter <laughs> Frey, his own fucking sons, in a pot pie sort of thing. <laughs> or you need access to a lot of acid.
1: <laughs> acid like, is very you know, helpful. Burn, like, I don't know where you buy big. See, this is what I'm saying. Of so this, this, yeah, is this is where it gets, you, Nobody, no here. crime.
2: So that's the part you have to figure out is like, how do you get rid of the body? You can't just dump the body in a river. You can't just, because shit always floats to the surface. It's always going to be found. Okay. So you got to get rid of the body.
1: So, out of curiosity, and please speak into the microphone. Yes. Should I go missing? Uh-huh. Where, where would the police? Where should they be looking for me?
2: Why would I say that? <laughs> Again, I told you, I will. Ne- I have not thought it through. I know what it will be about. <laughs> I have not thought it through.
1: I, I gotta be honest, I don't feel like I'm in any danger <laughs> unless I become worth a lot more money than I'm worth. Yeah,
2: right it's now. also not worth it to me. Like, no. it's not, no, that's the other part. Yeah. It's not really worth it. I, there's no money for me to, like, flee to Mexico or anything like that. So you're we'll, probably safe.
1: We'll call that love.
2: Okay. <laughs> have you thought about murdering me?
1: Never, dear. Oh, bullshit. The thought has never, Bull ever, shit, crossed my mind. No.
2: See, I was honest. I engaged in this exercise honestly, and you...
1: Well, I'm smart enough not to be captured on tape discussing how I would do it.
4: Well, whatever. Finally <laughs> found a fella Almost completely divine But his vocabulary Is killing this romance of mine We get into an intimate. Situation, And then begins this Romeo's conversation He says, murder, he says Every time we kids, he says, murder, he says At a time like this, he says, murder, he says Is that the language of love? He says, solid, he says he Takes men's in his arms, and says, solid, he says meaning all the charms, he says, solid, he says Is that the language of love? Says, chick chick, you torture me. Zoo, are we living? I'm thinking of leaving him flat. He says, dig dig the jump the old ticker has given. Now he can talk plainer than that. He says, murder, he says. Harry
1: Okay, I I think that that leads us directly into the the background I wanted to talk about for this movie, Mm -hmm. which is Leopold and Loeb. UFC. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Fellow (laughs) U of C alum, how proud you must be. (laughs) Yes. Because the murder in Rope is not based on that crime, but the murderers very clearly are. Okay. That they are very clearly based on Leopold and Loeb. Mm Mm-hmm. And these are two University of Chicago students who they only killed one person. For being as famous as they are, Leopold and Loeb only killed one person.
2: But I mean, given who they were, who they killed, that's it's like.
1: And it's, that's what was what fascinated America yeah. about this case is that these were two wealthy, intellectual white guys who just decided they wanted to murder somebody mm-hmm. just for fun.
2: Well, and to prove their intelligence. I think that was a whole thing about Nietzsche around that. Yes, and this there idea was. Of, like, Intelligent men are beyond the laws and rules. Exactly. Yeah. So it's the a superman fucking UOC thing to do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, Le- Leopold was obsessed with Nietzsche and really into that whole idea that there were people whose superiority put them beyond mm-hmm. laws and yeah. morality. Uh, Loeb, I think just wanted to kill somebody. He seemed to be obsessed with crime. Uh, he was a he was addicted to crime novels, detective stories and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they spent seven months supposedly planning the perfect murder. And proving your point, it was not remotely (laughs) the perfect murder. No. They were both from the wealthy Kenwood neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. So was their victim, who was Loeb's second cousin Mm -hmm. and lived across the street from him, Bobby Franks, who was 14 years old. And they, they were literally, after planning this murder for seven months, driving around looking for a victim and just decided, let's pick him and had him get in the car, and there was was never agreement on who actually was driving and then who killed or hit the kid over the head from the back seat. They both claimed that they'd been driving Mm that the other did, and it didn't really matter. But they were free for 10 days after this murder. They made ridiculously elaborate instructions for a ransom ransom, that they didn't even need or want. It was way too complicated. (laughs) It it went wrong quickly. I think it was Leopold dropped his glasses where they stashed the body. And the police found the glasses, and it turned out to be there were only three glasses like that that had been prescribed to people in the Chicago area. So that narrowed the list of suspects down really quickly. Yeah, it wasn't brilliant at all. There was nothing about it that was brilliant. But I do think think what fascinated everybody about it was who they were Mm -hmm. and the fact that they had no motive of any kind. It wasn't for money. It wasn't out of rage. It was just that they wanted to see if they could do it. Mm -hmm. And this kind of gets back to my original question of, like, why are we so fascinated with it? Because I think... There is this whole culture of murder is a game.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I love detective stories. I love mystery novels. I love those movies. It's fun.
2: Well, and there's been, you know, a huge growth in just a number of true crime podcasts, mm-hmm. television shows, stories. People are very fascinated with things like that. So,
1: And I think, you know, there's this whole serial killer subgenre mm-hmm. of things where it is all about the brilliant clues. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, this sort of intellectual superiority and this sort of the aesthetic you know, it's murder as a creative act mm-hmm. and all of that. I think that is traceable back to Leopold and Loeb to some extent. And I think it's troubling, I guess, in the long run. I don't know. What do you think? You
2: think it's tr- our fascination with murder? A little bit. Um. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that, it, that we become sort of desensitized and it becomes more entertainment than it is anything. I mean, you have those, like, what are they called? Um... Purge movies that I find those particularly disturbing because it is this just like complete just disregard for the this, this sort of sacredness of life and this idea that that can be contained in one day.
1: Yeah, but that's the other side of the equi- that's the side we were talking about before where that's just like we're going to give everybody a day to rage out to rage out mm-hmm. right to release those mm-hmm. suppressed animal instincts. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen those movies but I don't I any started. Started by the <laughs> way. But that's that's kind of the other side of the equation from this sort of almost admiration that we have mm-hmm. for these, you know, the Hannibal lectors and those guys that it's like, oh, he he killed twenty people, but he's so classy and <laughs> so clever.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I think we are a country that values intellect, even if that intellect shows up as evil. And it takes it to a place beyond the sort of ordinariness of a random killing or a killing that happens out of anger. Like it takes it to somewhere different,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which I, again, speaks to something like there's something different going on with that person. They are living by a set of rules that the rest of us aren't. And for however, particularly for, I mean, serial killers, obviously they, they do it for long enough that it seems like, yeah, they have the system beat, like they figured it out and they've been able to sort of do this. And I mean, I mean, with, the show Hannibal, which I only watched a little bit of.
1: <laughs> I love that show.
2: There was an elegance about oh, it. Oh, yeah. And, and there he was could cook. There's a beauty to it. And it it became this, like, aesthetic activity of just, like, it was a curation. Exactly. Right? Yes. And it, I think it is a very human response to sort of be respectful and be like, oh, like, <laughs> you're not just some thug you're doing like you're trying you're like trying to do something here you're trying to say you're something. an artist, an and how does someone who is intelligent who we would say oh they could have done anything
1: mm-hmm.
2: and they chose to do this
1: right which is again I think part of the fascination of mm-hmm. Leopold and Loeb these were these guys were from very wealthy families mm-hmm. their families yeah, no, were weren't. millionaires yeah. they were yeah
2: I think one of them their parents their dad was like one trusted was Sears and Roebuck and yeah. like they were very
1: they both went yeah. to college at like 14 and 15 yeah. they had graduated from the UFC they were only 18 and 19 when they committed this murder
2: yeah yeah so I think part of the fascination is again what pushes someone to make that choice when it seems that they have, privileges that have given them other options.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: They don't have to murder for money. They don't have to murder for... Like, there's no reason for them to be involved in crime or to be engaging in crime, but they choose it.
1: Now, ironically, this was part of the defense uh, Clarence Darrow Mm -hmm. gave for these two guys. Mm -hmm. Darrow... They're actually, it was called the trial of the century. There was no trial. Darrow convinced them to plead guilty in an effort to save them from the death penalty. That was was what the so-called, it was really a hearing about sentencing. Right. And Darrow ended up giving this famous... It was a twelve-hour summation, which it's interesting reading. It's all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's you know to me it's somewhat rambling, and it's just like very passionate. But one of his lines of defense was you know this was the original affluenza mm. defense. Mm-hmm. He said, "Your Honor, it is just as often a great misfortune to be the child of the rich as it is to be the child of the poor. Wealth has its misfortunes. Too much, too great opportunity and advantage given to a child has its misfortunes. Great wealth often curses." all who touch it and you know sort of blamed the parents for being absent parents and for letting the children be raised by nannies Mm -hmm. and for them having too much too easily like all of that became part of this defense of of why these guys should not be hanged which is what everyone in the country wanted to see happen that was part of the defense part of the defense was this sort of natural determinism of nature is strong and she is pitiless she works in mysterious ways and we are, are her victims like, these guys were just born this way, and therefore it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. You know, he was basically trying everything he could think of to try to get the judge not to not to hang these two kids. And Nietzsche, he blamed Nietzsche. He said, it is hardly fair to hang a 19-year-old boy for the philosophy that was taught him at the university. So they just came across some bad books. Bad literature,
2: yeah. Bad philosophy, <laughs> that's all.
1: You said this was a very U undergraduate thing to do. What do you, let, let's actually let's unpack that a little that's bit. What do what do you, what do you mean by that? <laughs>
2: That's not fair. I don't know that there are any other murderers in you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure there are.
2: <laughs> no, this idea of, like, the engaging of the intellectual exercise, which uh-huh. is like, you know. So I'm being very um, hyperbolic in this moment. But, so, like, my freshman year, a, a sort of dorm mate of mine invited me to go to this club. And she said it's a, the objectivist club. And I didn't know oh, what the hell that meant. Yeah. I was like, okay, whatever. We can check it out. <laughs> And they were all Ayn Rand. Yeah. And it was all dudes. And very into uh, the Fountainhead. And so it's just like, would I be surprised <laughs> if one of those gentlemen transgressed in some ways? Mm-hmm. No.
3: Because, <laughs> it's
2: just, because it becomes, it's an abstraction, right? Like, it's not, it becomes testing a theory. Right. It's a, It's an experiment. And it's not about the actual... Physical act and 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 what happens to that person? What happens to that person's family? What ha- like all of these other sort of ripple effects? Right. It's just like I'm testing a theory.
1: Right. Bobby um, Franks was yeah. a real kid. He's buried yeah. a couple of blocks north from us here in Rose Hill Cemetery. So I mean, yeah, I do think that there's this nexus of kind of youth, privilege, mm-hmm. arrogance, mm-hmm. and intellectualism that is dangerous. That can be very,
3: very dangerous.
1: Leopold. Loeb died in prison. Darrow's argument worked. They were both sentenced to life plus 99 years. Leopold got paroled though, didn't he? Leopold got paroled eventually after 30 some odd years. Loeb died in prison. He was killed. But Leopold after he got out, supposedly he was asked whether he had gotten over this idea of himself as Nietzsche's Superman. Mm -hmm. And he said little self-awareness here, I have gotten over being 19.
3: right.
2: (laughs) There you go.
1: (laughs) Okay, let's move on to talking about this movie. So what, besides what we've already talked about, do you actually know about this?
2: I know nothing about this movie.
1: Okay. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Okay. Okay, so the year is 1948, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. What, how many Hitchcock movies should we be doing here? I'm not sure what you've seen.
2: Um, I don't know that I've seen a ton of them. You've seen
1: Psycho. Seen you've birds, seen The Birds. You've seen Vertigo. You've seen, what's the one you like? Uh, Mar- is it Marnie? Yes. Okay. So I'm sure we will definitely do more Hitchcock movies at some point. hmm this, depending on who you ask, is not considered one of his masterpieces. <laughs> okay. Um, he did not consider it one of his masterpieces, but it's an interesting movie. It was an experiment. hmm The play, the original play, was written by Patrick Hamilton, and Hitchcock had seen the play, and he talked about how the play was basically 90 unbroken minutes, takes place in real time, no act breaks or anything. hmm and he became enamored of the idea of trying to recreate this feeling in film. So Rope is, you will see it referred to as a one-shot movie. It is not, but it tries to pretend that it is. Okay. And this had not really been done, in part because it's incredib- it was incredibly difficult to pull off. Mm-hmm. Film canisters held ten minutes of film you could not shoot a scene longer than 10 minutes without having to change the film canisters. Mm-hmm. Movie theaters, projectionists had to change the reels about every 26 or 30 minutes or something. So there had to be a break there. So it's just, technically, it's just incredibly difficult mm-hmm. to shoot something that appears to be all one shot. And he basically, later in life, said that he didn't think it worked. He said in his famous Long interview with Francois Truffaut, he said, When I look back, of course, it's quite nonsensical and unreal because I was breaking all my own tradition of using film in the cutting of film to tell a story. I sort of think that's what's interesting about this because basically he was making a movie with both hands tied behind his back. Mm-hmm. More than the illusion of the long take, it's what I think is fun about this is just watching him not being able to do all of the things that he would normally do to create drama and create tension and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's interesting from that perspective. stars Jimmy Stewart, Farley Granger, and John Dahl. It was actually Hitchcock's first film in color, which is another thing he was not happy with. He wasn't happy with how it turned out. He shot it in muted colors, and then when he saw it in Technicolor, he was like, it's too bright, Mm. it's too, you know. So I think there were a lot of reasons he ended up frustrated on this. And we can talk some more about how it was done after we watched the movie. So I think we'll end up talking about that. I think we'll end up talking about all the murder stuff that we were just talking about. And then I think the other interesting thing to talk about with this is the... Are we calling it subtext? The gay subtext. Okay. Which is barely subtext. I mean he he got it by the Hayes code people mm-hmm. how again like they could not these people could not have been very smart but the film was nonetheless still banned in a lot of american cities because of the homosexual content but it is it is a gay and leopold and loeb were lovers i mean it is a gay story mm-hmm. the two murderers in this movie and none of this is a spoiler because the murder is the very first thing we see in the movie okay the two murderers are very clearly coded as gay The intention had originally been that the Jimmy Stewart character was also gay. And this is one of the reasons a lot of people think Jimmy Stewart was horribly miscast in this movie. Because he was not going to play that. He probably was not even aware Hmm. of it. Uh, But that's something to think about (laughs) as we watch this. Um, Hitchcock had originally wanted Cary Grant for that role. And had wanted Montgomery Cliff to play the role that John Dahl ended up playing. Grant and Cliff were both at least bisexual. Yeah. The screenwriter, Arthur Lawrence, is gay. This is, it's, it's all there. Mm-hmm. And I imagine we will probably end up talking about that. Okay, I think that's about all we need to talk about beforehand. Uh, I will tell you, I'm pretty sure this is the shortest movie we have ever watched. All right. That So that, if nothing else, that should out. excite you yeah, about it.
3: that's good. <laughs>
1: Uh, it's just eighty minutes long, but it is—it does take place in real time, mm-hmm. so it's eighty uncut minutes. <laughs> so it may feel somehow longer. Alrighty. <laughs> okay, let's go watch *Rope*.
4: I do want to. I just think we ought to wait till after you graduate. I don't. It's only a month.
0: Janet, a month? Please. Sorry, I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations.
4: David, no.
0: Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment I'm in I'm your... staying right here. Oh? afraid you'll say yes?
4: I'll see you tonight at Brandon's Park.
0: Okay. You can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye. That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely and the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, and the two who were responsible for everything, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. The well, which is the cat and which is the mouse? Enough of that. He's got it! He knows. He knows. He knows. All right. Enough. enough. Easy. I'll take care no, of you, it. won't i just as kill you as kill
1: him. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched Rope. So, let's talk about the filmmaking a little bit first. So, one of the reasons we watched Rope, and I don't remember if I said this at the top of the episode is that Sam Mendes' 1917 is opening this week. And I haven't seen that yet. You probably won't see it at all. (laughs) No. But I do know that one of the big gimmicks in it is that it all appears to take place in one long, continuous shot. Mm -hmm. And there have been a few films that have done this. Alexander Sukharov did a film called Russian Ark that's literally one 96-minute study cam shot. Mike Figgis did a film called Time Code in 2000. And then just a few years ago, Ina Birdman, or the unendurable pretension of douchebaggery, whatever that movie was called.
2: I don't think that was the title. Uh,
1: did, did the same thing, where it all appeared to be one long shot. Mm-hmm. But, I, I th- so I think this has gotten more common, and I think super long shots have gotten more common. But that's partially because the technology has made it much easier now. So, I think to really appreciate rope, we have to remember what Hitchcock was dealing with in trying to do this. Mm-hmm. This was before the invention of the steady cam. This was before, obviously, computers, digital film, all those other things that make it easier to hide cuts between things. And at this point, cameras were huge. Like, cameras were big, gigantic, rolling things. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody was walking around with an iPhone filming them through this apartment. Right. So, the, and like I said before, the cameras only held 10 minutes of film at a time. So, the set was built, all of the walls were built on rollers. So doorways would open up, like sliding doors, as characters moved through them to make room for the cameras to follow. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. The whole set was set up to, to come apart and go back together silently. Furniture was on rollers to move it out of the way so the camera could pan back and forth throughout through the apartment as it needed to. And... Then you have just the challenge of shooting on film, everything goes perfectly for 9 minutes and 30 seconds, and then someone blows the take, and you have to go back and do the entire thing over again. Right. So, from that perspective alone, I do think this is kind of a dazzling achievement. But none of that really matters that much if the story is not engrossing. And in fact, the reviews for this movie were not uniformly great. Pretty much everyone focused on the gimmick of it and then said, "Eh, you know, it's a pretty thin story Hmm. beyond that. Mm -hmm. What did you think?
2: I liked it. I thought it was... A taut thriller. Uh, yeah, no, I thought it was a really efficient piece of storytelling.
1: I thought so, too. In fact, it was better than I remembered it being. Okay.
2: Yeah, I mean, I it's definitely I wouldn't rank it as one of my favorite Hitchcock films, mm-hmm. and maybe that is because he had to strip away so many of the sort of so much of his hand had to sort of be removed from this film, just right. given what they were trying to accomplish technically. But I do think that within the sort of strictures of this experiment that he was able to create... The suspense that we love mm-hmm. in all of his films. So yeah, I liked it. I thought Jimmy Stewart was not my favorite in this.
1: Right. I said before that a lot of people thought he was miscast, and I sort of think so too.
2: He still, and that maybe this is just a very, like, Jimmy Stewart just can't shake the the moral everyday mm-hmm. man persona. And that's not to say that he isn't an excellent actor. He absolutely is. But I, he felt, even before he realized what his students were up to, he still seemed to be too good of a man to have been the person that would have sort of ignited this. Right. That the sort movies. of right.
1: sinister yeah. influence <laughs> he was supposed to be on them.
2: So that was probably my only sort of like, and eh, that probably should have been somebody else should have been in
3: that role.
1: Right. Well, I said Hitchcock wanted Cary Grant originally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Grant either turned it down because of the content or couldn't get out of his contract at Archeo or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, stories vary uh, as to why it wasn't Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. But I think I said to you, I would have put. Uh, George Sanders, Addison DeWitt, in this role.
3: Absolutely.
1: And then I think you really have that sort of diabolical influence. Yes.
2: Well, and I think that that character works more if it is someone who exudes... And elitism and a, a class, right, certain class exactly. and privilege. And again, Jimmy Stewart just doesn't. He's just. He's just never right. going to look like that person. Right. And, <laughs> <I> mean, and, <laughs> he's, and at the end,
1: when he gives his big speech, like it's it's Mr. Smith goes right, to and exactly. That's exactly. all we see. There. And he's
2: very. And that that sort of last scene, that last monologue of his is he's great in it. But it makes it harder to believe that he would have been the person that has sort of walked these men down that path. Yeah. It's not hard to believe that he would have taught them Nietzsche. But it would have been hard to believe that right. he wasn't doing it in a mocking way of like, yeah, privileged people think they can do anything they want to do. And it's because they're privileged assholes, not actually saying.
1: Right. Yes. But he's too much the everyman right. yeah. to sound like he's serious exactly. about any of that. Yeah. Whereas, again, I think George Sanders would have yes. absolutely nailed that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you were talking about, and I think I said, to me, what's fun is watching how Hitchcock does create the suspense in this without. Mm -hmm. Because he was known for his editing. That's what, I mean, one of the things Hitchcock is known for is his montage. Mm -hmm. And like I said, this is not really one long shot. The average film at the time had about, I mean, anywhere between three and 500 cuts. Mm-hmm. Movies today have closer to, like, 1,200 cuts. Mm-hmm. you got something like a Michael Bay movie. We're <laughs> talking way more than that. This movie has 10 cuts in it. Mm-hmm. Five of them are disguised. Five or six are disguised cuts. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many of them you noticed,
2: I noticed going when, through it. So they, and I don't know if I'm right on this, but when they would... Pan the camera behind one yeah. of the actors, and yeah. so it was sort of fade to black because you were seeing the back. You were seeing
1: the back of his jacket, of a jacket. right? That or is or the where back the of a chair, were, right. or something
2: like that, which I thought was actually a clever way to do it.
1: And then there are four or five open cots that are just cots mm. where it jumps, and I noticed a couple of them, but I think they're, they're really blended hard. so seamlessly yeah, really in that you catch. barely even yeah. notice those. And also, I think we're just so used to it yeah. that we don't notice it. Yeah. But within that, the camera work is dazzling. Mm-hmm. The direction and the choreography of the cameras is amazing and so well thought out. Just the way it follows a character through the apartment, mm-hmm. transfers the conversation and the tension of the scene to a couple of other characters, mm-hmm. focuses on them, and then the camera moves. Just, I mean, it's really kind of amazing. Yeah, It's really well done. Well, okay, so let's talk about the story. Okay. Fairly simple story. Yep. <laughs> we open, as I said, with the murder, so mm-hmm. there's no mystery about that. Yep. With Brandon, who's John Dahl, mm-hmm. and Philip, who's Farley Granger, mm-hmm. strangling David. I don't even have David's name. <laughs> Can't really talk much about that performance because he just spends it in a box.
2: It's like, what's that, uh, the Motown movie, where, uh, is it Kevin Costner that's like dead?
1: Oh, the big chill!
2: Yes, he's not actually in the film. Yeah,
1: that that opening shot of his slit Mm wrists. i think that's Kevin Costner's only appearance in that movie. Yes, Uh, yeah. So they strangle David and throw him in a chest, Mm -hmm. and then they're gonna have a little party. Yes, because
2: if you're gonna murder someone, you need to, you know, have a party to celebrate (laughs) the fact that you did it.
1: So, so talk to me about these two these two characters.
2: Um, Well, Brandon's obviously the top. In the relationship. He is... The alpha. The alpha, the dominant, and it seems to be that he was the driver of their killing David. Now, I... If I'm remembering correctly, it's actually Philip who does the strangling. Yes, it is. But it's very clear, very early on, that Brandon <laughs> is the sort of, quote-unquote, brains of the operation. <laughs> and he is the cooler cucumber. He is like, okay, we did this because we wanted to do it, and now we're going to sort of luxuriate in our genius by having a party, mm-hmm. and this dead body is going to be the centerpiece of our party, and no one's going to know. and even going to invite our professor to the party, who taught us all of this about right. murder, just to sort of show off. And he
1: he appears to have no conscience of no, any kind. No,
2: he is a psychopath. He's not
1: bothered by this. He's not no. nervous about it. Uh, he gets a little nervous later in the movie, towards
2: but the end. Yes, but no. In the
1: beginning, he's
2: fully bought into the "I'm the superior <laughs> being," and so by that, I have the right to remove what, who who he considers to be sort of inferior or ordinary men from the from from the
1: world. But Philip, and this comes back to your old rule about know, know your, your crew. Know your crew,
2: man. Don't if you don't murder in pairs, <laughs> murder alone, because inevitably somebody is going to dime the other person out, and it's just not. Yeah. So Philip is jumpy from moment one. <laughs> yeah. He is a mess and can barely contain himself over the course of the film, and just sort of gets drunker and messier mm-hmm. as the night goes on.
1: I mean that character is almost played for laughs. Yeah. like this yeah. is to some extent a comedy, and mm-hmm. that character, as he gets drunker, just becomes more sloppy, yeah. And obvious. Yeah. But yeah, his guilt seems to kick in pretty quickly, right away. Yeah. Brandon, how did you feel when during it? I don't know, really.
0: I don't remember feeling very much of anything until his body went limp and I knew it was over and then then I felt tremendously exhilarated how did you feel uh, I,
2: Brandon was basically standing there having an orgasm <laughs> through it all it was clearly exhilarating and erotic for him mm-hmm. <clears throat> in a way that it obviously wasn't for Philip so,
1: okay, well, do you want to start talking about the sexual subtext here?
2: Um, I mean, I don't know how much subtext there was. I mean, they are obviously a couple um mm-hmm. they were planning to go to, like up north to a cabin together yep. and spend have a little holiday away and you know, you had this thing of, like, the body and the chest that nobody talked about, but they knew. So it's this idea of, like, being in the closet. Right, go, exactly. Sort of the, the, the unspoken yeah. elephant in the room <laughs> was was the homosexuality. So And
1: yeah. David was straight.
2: David was straight, yes. Because David
1: had a fiancé yes. who we meet, and yes.
2: Yes, which apparently made him maybe one of the reasons why they considered him to be ordinary and therefore disp- disposable. Mm-hmm. But yes.
1: So it's interesting how that plays into that whole, the whole Superman notion Mm -hmm. and kind of plays into the, you know, movies for a long time had been coding the sort of intellectual characters. Mm Mm-hmm. And the sort of the aesthetes right. as gay. Right. And this movie is kind of very aware of that and sort of positions them as these, you know, that they consider themselves superior to the straights. Yeah. And, you know. And even now, I mean, I think there's often that element in these serial killer mm-hmm. characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hannibal Lecter is quite an aesthete yes. too. yes. And I think there, I in one of the Hannibal Lecter books or movies, there's a character who says that. Like, I always figured he was queer, I mm-hmm. think the guy says. Mm-hmm. Just because it was all, you know, fancy dinner parties right. and all of that. So Pairing like,
2: lovely wines with their dead Yeah, bodies. exactly. Yes, yes.
1: So, yeah. I mean, so then, you know, we're going to have a little dinner party here.
2: Yeah. And we're not going to have dinner and the dinner table.
1: No, that was plan A, but then yeah. Brandon has a brainstorm. Yeah.
2: We are going to repurpose the chest holding the dead body... <laughs> of David as a dinner table, and so they um, drape it with this, like, pink lace and top it with two candelabras. No, and you're not whole... you're not
1: impressed with the decor.
2: Well, I mean, because it, that's morbid, um, more than a little bit morbid. But, of course, it's like this is their presentation, and part of their presentation is this dead body that only they know about. And mm-hmm. so it's part of the performance. It's mm-hmm. part of the... The murder
1: tableau. <laughs> the yes. murder tableau. And it is twisted. Mm-hmm. Because who they have invited to this party yeah. is David's parents. Mm-hmm. It turns out David's mother doesn't come, but David's father and aunt yes. come. Mrs. Atwater. David's... Fiance. Fiance, Janet. Mm-hmm. David's best friend,
2: mm-hmm. who... Used to date Janet. Who used
1: to date Janet. I think, I think there's a question about... That's Ken. I think there's a question about where Ken fits on the sexuality spectrum (laughs) Mm -hmm. here, too. Because in the first half of the movie, we think Janet dumped Ken for David. Mm -hmm. And then we find out, no, no, Ken dumped dumped Janet. So that's an interesting question there. Is that everybody at the party? And then Rupert. And Rupert. And... Philip is horrified when he learns Brandon has invited Rupert.
2: Right, because he's sure that Rupert will figure them out immediately.
1: Right. He says he's the one man on the planet that could be suspicious about what we've done. Mm -hmm.
0: I thought you liked Rupert. I do. Well, then. Brandon, of all the people on this earth, Rupert Cadell is the one man most likely to suspect. He's the one man who might appreciate this from our angle, the artistic one. That's what's exciting. I'm glad it excites you. It frightens me. I know, but I suggest you keep your voice down. It would have been too easy with the others, Philip, and too dull. As for Rupert, I I once thought of inviting him to join us. Why didn't you? The more the merrier. Because he he hasn't the nerve. Oh, intellectually, he could have come along. He's brilliant, but he's a little too uh, fastidious. He could have invented and he could have admired, but he never could have acted. That's where we're superior, Philip. We have courage.
1: Rupert doesn't. Which, I mean, there's the, again, all these serial killer movies, eventually somebody says, well, they secretly want to get right, caught. Right,
2: right. Well, because that's part of it is you want people to know that you just pulled off the smartest crime ever.
1: <laughs> right. And
2: so, so you, the ego of it. They can't appreciate right.
1: your genius exactly. unless they catch you and find out about it. And Brandon throughout the movie is dropping a lot of yeah. hints. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Wilson, champagne. It isn't someone's birthday, is it? Don't look so worried, Kenneth. It's, uh really
0: almost the opposite
2: yeah i mean even when he tells ken who he again he thinks has been left by janet for david right oh i don't think you're gonna have to worry about david anymore
1: <laughs> right he says I have, I have a feeling your chances with janet are about to improve <laughs> oh so, yeah he says he wasn't doing a whole lot to hide <laughs> and then the parties the party starts and everybody's like where's david David's late. It's not like David to be late to a party.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And like the whole first act, we're sort of waiting for Rupert to show up. Yes. And I like how that plays out because he just sort of appears. Mm-hmm. We don't see him come in. It's suddenly the camera pans around and he's standing there. I think he's watching. Is Philip playing the piano? Philip
3: is playing the piano. Yeah. yeah.
1: And he j- has just sort of appeared there in this scene. Mm-hmm. So, leaving out the Jimmy Stewartness of it, what do you think about Rupert?
2: So, I think Rupert is an interesting character. And In thinking about how different actors might have played it, George Sanders would have felt sort of of a kind with that group of people who had assembled of the same sort of class and the same sort of privilege. Right. So,
1: he would have seemed like an older version would, of Brandon.
2: Right. And so, the almost. I don't know that it was so much contempt or sort of slight mockery that you that i think jimmy stewart brings to it the way that he interacts with the other party goers
1: mm-hmm. like the whole
2: thing he has with david's aunt about she can't remember the names of actors
4: and she can't <laughs> right remember mrs
1: atwaters and
4: yes. so he's like oh he was living in that new thing with bergman what is it called now the something of the something no no that was the other one this was just Plain something. You know, it was sort of,
0: you know. It was right, right on the tip of my tongue.
4: Mine too. It was just plain something, I'm sure. I adored it. And Bergman. She's the Virgo type. Like all these, you know. Oh, I think she's lovely.
0: I once went to the movies. I saw Mary Pickford.
4: I was mad about her, didn't you love
0: her? Oh, the Virgo type, brother. like all of these. What did you see her in? I don't quite recall the something something. Or uh, was it just plain something? Really, something rather like
2: that. I don't believe you ever win, and and sort of mocking her, but in a but it's it's a gentle, friendly kind of mocking. It's a gentle, friendly kind of mocking. And then when he starts to go in on the his whole philosophy of well, if people were allowed to murder, if the privileged and the superior were allowed to murder, it would go a long way towards solving things like poverty and hunger, et cetera, et cetera. And waiting in line for theater tickets. Because it's Jimmy Stewart, it comes out as almost a like an accusation against the privileged class. <laughs> Rupert, you're the end.
0: There's a hotel clerk I could cheerfully flick a knife at. Oh, no. Sorry. Knives may not be used on hotel employees. They are in the death by slow torture category. Oh. <laughs> along with bird lovers, small children, and tap dancers. <laughs> Landlords, of course, are another matter. You're seeking an apartment? call on our Miss Sashwaite of the Blunt Instrument Department.
4: <laughs> what a divine idea! If it suits your purpose merely, But then we'd all be murdering each
0: other. Oh, no. Oh, no. After all, murder is, or should be, an art. Not one of the seven lively, perhaps, but an art, nevertheless. And as such, the privilege of committing it should be reserved for those few who are really superior individuals. And the victims, inferior beings whose lives are unimportant anyway. Obviously. Now, mind you, I don't hold with the extremists who feel that there should be open season for murder all year round. No. Personally, I would prefer to have... cut a throat week. Oh. Or... Uh, strangulation Day. So.
2: It's almost mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. eat the rich except flipped, right? Like that right. sort of no, thing.
1: No, that's a good point. It does sort of have yeah, that. Yeah, it
2: has that where he's sort of judging them a little bit. and It's he's, almost like a parody. Right, like of... he doesn't actually believe that but he knows that it sort of plays to the the sort of cla- the privilege of that space. Whereas if it's Sanders, mm-hmm. then it seems much more sincere because right. he's of that same class. So that character, the way you experience that character, changes so much. So when you brought up Sanders, it's like, oh, that would read really differently if it was him versus if it's if it's Jimmy Stewart. So for me, like I said in the beginning, it's harder to believe that this man would have been someone that had I don't know if I want to say corrupted or but had
1: sort of. Well, I mean, I, I think that's what the movie wants yeah. us to think. Yeah. And I think that going back, I think, again, that's what Clarence Darrow. Mm-hmm. One of the things he argued when he defended Le- Leopold and Loeb was mm-hmm. that, you know, they were exposed to dangerous philosophy. Right, right.
2: Whereas with Jimmy Stewart, I feel like he would have been teaching that. But thinking that his students knew that, like, obviously, I'm not advocating for this. Like, right. This is actually a statement on right. class division and inequity and blah, 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 blah. And I'm totally joking. Like, you should not be taking this seriously. Whereas if it's Sanders, it's a, it's a very, it's a much more sincere and earnest read. So, yeah, that character was interesting for me.
1: What do you think about the the screenwriter, at the very least, suggested that he's gay, too? And even that he has had an affair with one or both of those So, again, with Jimmy
2: Stewart, it doesn't read that way at all.
1: I don't think it does either, but I think in the text, mm-hmm. there are hints of that. Mm-hmm. For example, there's this whole thing about Philip strangling chickens yes. up at the farm. Right. Which is where, like you said, Brandon and Philip are on their way to the farm mm-hmm. when they leave here. Mm-hmm. But... Brandon brings it up to sort of provoke Philip. Philip. Right. Philip freaks out about it Mm -hmm. in his drunken way and says, I never strangled any chicken. And then a little later, Jimmy Stewart says... I was there. Why'd you lie about it? I was up at the farm, remember? And one morning I saw you strangling chickens. So, I mean, to the extent that the farm is a metaphor, which is kind of what you were implying, Jimmy Stewart's been to the farm and spent the night at the farm. Yes. And he also says to Brandon at one point, you always did stammer when you get excited. Mm. You know? And so there's stuff like that that I think is in there if we want to read it. I do think we have to get over the Jimmy Stewartness of it. Mm -hmm. And then we have this, and he's not much of a character, but the moral voice in the movie is...
2: David's father. David's
1: father, Mr. Mr. Kentley.
2: Also known as Pharaoh from (laughs) The Ten Commandments.
1: (laughs) But yeah, he's not... He doesn't see. No, he's not enjoying that conversation. At all. No. Probably a symptom of approaching senility, but I must confess
0: that I really don't appreciate this morbid humor. Well, the humor was unintentional. But you're not serious about these theories. Of course he is. Oh, so you're both pulling my leg. No, why do you think that? Well, Brandon, the notion that murder is an art which a few superior beings should be allowed to practice. In season. <laughs> now I know you're not serious. But I am. I'm a very serious fellow. Then may I ask, who is to decide that a human being is inferior, and is therefore a suitable victim for murder? The few who are privileged to commit murder. And just who might they be? Oh, myself, Philip, possibly Rupert. Hmm. I'm sorry, Kenneth, you're out. Gentlemen, I'm serious. (laughs) So are we, Mr. Cantley. The few are those men of such intellectual and cultural superiority that they're above the traditional moral concepts. Good and evil, right and wrong, were invented for the ordinary average man, the inferior man, because he needs them. Then obviously you agree with Nietzsche in his theory of the superman. Yes, I do. So did Hitler. Hitler was a, a paranoic savage. His supermen, all fascist supermen, were brainless murderers. I'd hang anywhere left. But then you see, I'd hang them first for being stupid. I'd hang all incompetents and fools anyway. There are far too many in the world. Then perhaps you should hang me, Brandon, for I I'm so stupid I don't know whether you're all serious or not. But in any case, I'd rather not hear any more of your, forgive me, contempt for humanity and for the standards of a world that I believe is civilized.
2: Yeah, and he just sort of grows increasingly anxious at the fact that David hasn't shown up and he hasn't called, and so, it, yeah.
1: Right, yeah, he's worried about his son, mm-hmm. and he's sort of our reminder that that was a real person. Yes. That people care about. hmm and so there's this whole cat and mouse game going around him that's very fun and it's very erudite and mm-hmm. clever and witty. But he wants no part of that. Right. He's again, I do think he's sort of the moral center of the movie because he's just worried about his son. Yeah. Who is in the chest right. five feet away from him that people are eating off of. Right. Like we I think we do forget that at points. I think but we do we sometimes shouldn't forget, forget that the body's that. in
2: there. Yeah. Yeah
1: yeah, so Rupert starts to figure out pretty quickly that something is going on here.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: He can tell Philip is frazzled. Yes. And he kind of makes Philip more frazzled, (laughs) trying to get information out of him. I love the metronome scene. Yeah. Philip's playing the piano and Rupert comes up and turns the metronome on. Mm -hmm. I must say, alright, I'll ask you. What do you suspect?
0: Oh, I've forgotten. Where's David, Philip? I don't know. Why? Brandon knows. Does he? Doesn't he? Not that I know. Oh, come now. I don't. Why don't you ask Brandon? No, I, was I have. But he's too busy maneuvering the other two points of the triangle. What for, Philip? Just what is Brandon trying to do with Janet and Kenneth? <laughs> what? <laughs> no matter, what are you laughing at? Nothing. No. What is... What am What am I, so far off the track? There's nothing going on at all, Rupert. You're, uh, more than usually allergic to the truth tonight, Philip. That's the second time you haven't told it. Thanks. When was the first? When well, you said you'd
1: never strangle a chicken. And just that... <laughs> it's nerve-wracking. Which seems... I don't know if it actually gets faster. It seems it does to, like, seem like it's, get a, faster yeah. as it, you know, yeah. as the tension of that scene is rising. Yeah. It's really well done. I think for a while, Rupert just thinks it's about Janet, that Brandon is playing games.
2: He's trying to get which Janet he is. back with He's also Ken. doing that. He is also doing that, yes. So, yes, he's sort of trying to get Janet to go back to Ken, who I assume it's evidently is, you know, worthy enough to... You know, continue breathing. So (laughs) he's there's definitely a little manipulation game going on there. But he's doing that, not realizing that Ken dumped Janet and not the other way around. And so the two of them, Ken and Janet, have their own little moment where they realize that... Brandon is, like, playing with them and is trying to do something. And that's sort of the moment where they start to question, like, well, why? what's going on here? And where, where is right. David? And This is a
1: weird... Everybody yeah. seems to understand that this it's is a, a weird, weird party. dinner party. It's a weird
2: party. <laughs> yeah.
1: But nobody's quite sure why yeah. it's weird. Why it's so weird or what Brandon is really up to. And we have a couple of moments of high suspense. As, uh, we haven't talked about Mrs. Wilson, the housekeeper. <laughs> but... She gets Rupert suspicious because she starts talking about how, sus- how nervous the boys seem to be before mm-hmm. this party mm-hmm. and how weird it was that they moved everything onto the trunk, decided to serve from the living room off the trunk and all of that. And then as the party's winding down, she decides to clear the trunk and... Put some books back inside it.
2: That actually, that shot was really well done. It's really Um, amazing. So, and you spoke to this earlier about how the camera sort of follows and and leaves certain conversations. So the chest is sort of foreground in the scene. And looking back, you sort of see straight back through the apartment all the way to the kitchen. So
1: There are a lot of great shots through that kitchen door, that 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 swinging kitchen door. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but just thinking about the fact that this all had to be choreographed and it was all one long Mm -hmm. take. Just getting the timing right yeah. on that swinging door, so you could see what you were supposed to see. Right there's a, there's a point earlier where we see Brandon drop the rope, the yeah. murder weapon, into a drawer, and it's perfectly timed as that door swings yeah. open and shut, so we see. I can't even fathom how long it took. No, to yeah. all of many, this. many
2: takes, I imagine.
1: Sorry, but go ahead. Yes, no. that drunk scene.
2: <clears throat> yeah, so we see back through to the kitchen door and she is very sort of methodically cleaning it off. So first she's clearing off the food, mm-hmm. and then she's clearing off the plates, and then she takes off the candelabras, and then she takes off the tablecloth. And the tension is building cuz you're like, "Oh shit, she's going to open that chest." Like and the
1: just chest. to just off-screen almost. I think we yeah. can see one person's back, but everybody else is gathered to the right off-screen and
2: freaking out,
1: starting to get seriously yeah. worried about David. Yeah. Should we call the police? Yeah. But we just see
2: her sort of slowly yeah. clearing off the chest. And then, yes, she picks up the books and starts to put the books in the chest. Starts to
1: lift the lid on the chest. And I
2: think Rupert, Jimmy Stewart's character, comes over to try to help her. And Brandon goes over quickly (laughs) and is like, no, no, let's (laughs) just keep the books. Maybe don't worry about
1: the books right now. On top
2: of the chest. It's totally fine. (laughs) It's
1: a fantastic sequence. It's a really
2: well shot sequence. Because you see her sort of walk back to the kitchen to put things back, come back up to the chest to move more things off, take that back to the kitchen. It's a great sort of long Shot um, And
1: it's, again, it's just so Hitchcockian, yeah, too. I mean, is. that's his, he, you know, he had his classic line about, if two characters are talking and a bomb suddenly goes off, that's shock. Mm-hmm. If two characters are talking and you show the audience the bomb under the table, that's suspense. Yeah. And it's like, that body in this movie is, is bomb. the bomb under the table yeah. throughout the entire movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's the moment where Rupert starts to get seriously suspicious about what's happening here is when Brandon won't let her open that trunk. Mm -hmm. He's starting to piece it all together, but he still can't quite believe it. He still wants to think that he's just letting his imagination run away with him. Mm -hmm. Even though he's sort of figured it all out at this point. He just doesn't think anyone would really do it. Right. Because he's been talking this way for years, Mm -hmm. but would never really do it. But then the party's pretty much over. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anyone had a good time.
2: No. Not at all.
1: <laughs> Actually, I think Rupert says at one point, I think I'm the only person here having a good time.
2: Well, that's because he thought he was investigating something that was fun, and then I think started to realize that, oh, no, this is not yeah, a fun thing that's right. happening right now. Yeah,
1: There is a parlor game going on, but it's not yeah, a no, fun it's not one. It's not fun. So the family and everybody leaves because they are at this point seriously yes, worried about David. They're going to go call to the police or yeah. whatever and mm-hmm. try to track him down. Mm-hmm. And Rupert leaves. Yeah.
2: But first he goes to the the closet for his hat. <laughs>
1: yes.
2: <laughs> and, and
1: Mrs. Wilson.
2: Hands him the wrong hat. And he looks in it and the initials DK are stitched into the hat. So it's obviously that that was David's hat. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that was one of the last sort of puzzle pieces for him. It was like, okay, well, David was obviously here.
1: But he still leaves. He
2: still leaves.
1: Because he still doesn't want to believe it. Right. And he's gone for a few minutes. And is this where Philip really freaks out?
2: Yeah, Philip starts to freak. You know, Brandon still thinks that they have gotten away with the perfect murder and his party went very well.
1: And Brandon is so, he's, he's so, so proud so of himself. Self,
2: you know, He's like, this party's going to go down
1: in history. <laughs> Oh, Philip, this party really deserves to go down in
0: history. (laughs) Well, come on, it's over. And it couldn't have gone more beautifully. Yes, it could. Without Rupert. Oh, but he was brilliant. He helped me say all the things I wanted to say to those idiots. He gave the party the very touch I predicted. The touch of what? Prying? Snooping? Or just plain pumping? Do you know how busy he was questioning me? About what? Oh, a difference. You were busy in there arranging that other little touch of yours. What touch? Tying up the books that way. Oh, I thought that was wonderful. Didn't you like it? No, Brandon, I didn't like it one bit. He'll ruin everything with your neat little touches. Quiet, Mrs. Wilson's still here. Determined to get drunk, aren't you? I am drunk. And just as childish as you were before when you called me a liar. You had no business telling that story why did you lie anyway i had to have you ever bothered for just one minute to understand how someone else might feel i'm not sentimental if that's what you no that's not what i mean but it doesn't matter nothing matters except that mr brandon liked the party mr brandon gave the party mr brandon had a delightful evening well i had a rotten evening
2: and philip is just like okay we need to get the fuck out of dodge And then Rupert calls up and uh, Philip answers the phone and he's just not good at this because he basically freaks out on the phone like, ah, ah, and then just drops the phone. And Brandon has to go and say, yeah, no, no, Phil's just having a hard night. He comes
1: back and he yells at Brandon. He
2: knows we killed <laughs> him.
1: He figured it out. He's it's like, not The good. phone is just off the hook. I'm he's sure not Jimmy good. Stewart heard that too.
2: Not good. <laughs> Um, but basically Jimmy Stewart said, oh, I forgot my cigarette case. Can I come up and and look for it? And so Brandon says, sure, you can come up and look for it. And then he goes to grab a gun out of the closet Yeah, just just in case.
1: And even then when Jimmy Stewart comes back, I think he, he says something, they're talking about kidnapping at one point.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: I think at that point he wants to think that at the worst they have David tied up somewhere.
2: somewhere. Yeah. So, one of the things, David's father came over for, to look at these first these collection of first edition books. Mm-hmm. And Brandon being the drama queen that he is,
3: <laughs>
2: ties the book with the very same piece of rope that they had used to kill yep. his son. And Rupert notices Philip freaking out about the fact that... Brandon had tied the books with these ropes and so that was another sort of, okay, it obviously involved rope and so it's like maybe they've tied him up somewhere or something like that, but yeah.
1: Yeah. And then when Rupert comes back, he's got the rope. Right. Yeah, he's taken the rope from Mr. Kenley and brought it back with him as a prop. Mm-hmm. Again, I think just a gauge reaction. Yeah. He's, he's pretty much honed in on Philip as the weak link in well, this Well, because he is. In this
2: very pair. clearly the weak link.
1: <laughs> to you, Philip is the Fredo. He is this.
2: the fucking, like, just don't, this is, no, do shit by yourself because it's just.
1: Do not commit crimes trust with eye-strung, no one. mentally unstable people. Trust
2: no one.
1: And yeah, so everything comes out here, and Philip says, "He says this is what you wanted, Brandon. Mm-hmm. You wanted someone else to know how brilliant you are. Yeah, like you engineered this whole fucking thing so Rupert would find out. Mm-hmm. But I think, and this is the part where again Jimmy Stewart makes it hard for us to believe this. But Brandon thinks
2: he'll be fine with it.
1: He'll be fine with it. Yeah." That at the very least, he won't expose them, and at best, he's actually going to applaud them for doing this. Mm -hmm. Which, again, you take a George Sanders and put him in that role, you could believe that Brandon might have thought that. Right. We don't believe in a million years (laughs) that Jimmy Stewart is going to come in and say, oh, you clever boys. Right. Good
2: job on that murder. (laughs) I taught you well.
1: I taught Right. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And this is another scene where there's a little bit of flourish that is brought into the space because now... So we're in Brandon and Philip's penthouse and they have these sort of beautiful panoramic windows mm. and where we see the New York skyline and we see it as it gets dark. And so it's nighttime at this point when Rupert's come back up to the apartment and there is like a neon sign <laughs> outside that's flashing like red and green. Yeah, and Everything has been sort of hyper real up until this point. And that's the, the one sort of flourish or sort of um almost an
1: expressionist, almost an expression (laughs) right
2: for the film and it's coming at this moment of like everything is coming to a head so i just i thought that whole last scene was really
3: interesting
1: we should talk i i meant to talk about that set earlier too this is because hitchcock talked about that backdrop Mm -hmm. it couldn't be like a flat backdrop like a painted backdrop right because you're staring at it for the entire... Right. It's, it's always there. Right. And time is passing. You're like, there's no way you could do it that way. They couldn't do a projection thing, because again, you're looking at it the whole time. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you just... That, if it was up yeah. there for a few seconds, you could do it that way. So he said... Apparently it's called a cyclorama. He described it as an exact miniature reproduction of nearly 35 miles of New York skyline, lighted by 8,000 incandescent bulbs and 200 neon signs, requiring 150 transformers. That was probably exaggerated. I don't know that there's thirty-five miles <laughs> of skyline there, but it's a really impressive set, it and is. it was all individually wired, so they could turn little lights come on in, in buildings as yeah. the sun is yeah. setting and all of that is going on. It's it's a really great set. But yeah, that fi- that final scene, it, it's getting dark outside, the sun is set, that neon light is blasting through the window. It's the tension is just mm-hmm. ramped up there. Mm-hmm. There's a scene in there I really like where Rupert is. He's basically figured everything out, and he's, I think Brandon says, well, how would you kill mm. David? Mm-hmm. And Rupert thinks about it, and he's like, well, I suppose it could have happened like this. And then the camera. And Hitchcock does the whole thing with mm-hmm. just the camera. Mm-hmm. It's fucking brilliant. It I love it. Yeah. No character, just the camera moving throughout that apartment. Well, I suppose you would invite him in over here, and you'd bring him over here, and, and, and down you'd down stand and behind him. And and it stand, was really Yeah, well it's done. really well done. Yeah. And Jimmy Stewart gives his big speech. Yeah. What do you mean?
0: I mean that tonight you've made me ashamed of every concept I ever had of superior or inferior beings. And I thank you for that shame. Because now I know that we are each of us a separate human being, Brandon. With the right to live and work and think as individuals. But with an obligation to the society we live in. By what right do you... DARE say that there's a superior few to which you belong? By what right did you dare decide that that boy in there was inferior and therefore could be killed? Did you think you were God, Brandon? Is that what you thought when you choked the life out of him? Is that what you thought when you served food from his grave? Well, I don't know what you thought or what you are, but I know what you've done. You've murdered! You've strangled the life out of a fellow human being who could live and love as you never could and never will again. What are you doing? It's not what I'm going to do, Brandon, it's what society's going to do. I don't know what that'll be, but I can guess and I can help. You're going to die, Brandon, both of you! You're going to die. He
2: basically... You know, does the Jimmy Stewart thing that <laughs> Jimmy Stewart does really well and is basically saying, you know, did you think you were God? And how mm-hmm. dare you think that you had any right to take the life of someone, you know, to take what? someone else's life? And what right
1: um, did you have to right decide you, you were superior like, and that boy? Yeah was inferior. Yeah. And he does own it a little bit. He says, you made me ashamed of every mm-hmm. concept I ever taught you. Do we think it's his fault? I don't. I is, mean, is, is all of this an indictment of the University <laughs> of Chicago, Nikia? Uh, if I was
2: still, still paying Academia
1: back. in general and yeah. your alma mater in particular?
2: If I was still paying back loans, I'd say absolutely
3: <laughs> fuck that place. Uh,
2: but no. I So, no. Because there are a lot of things that you learn, and this is any college, anywhere, even before college that no one is saying you need to act on. No one is saying you need to take as scripture. No mm-hmm. one is saying that you need, you know, the point is to get you to think for yourself and to hopefully make informed choices and informed decisions. So I don't blame him as an instructor. I guess he probably could have been a little bit more clear in his <laughs> lectures <laughs> that this was like a rhetorical exercise and not a life mission mm.
1: well he I mean he does say he says, I have talked this way all mm-hmm. my life, he says, but I always knew deep down there was something essential in me that would
2: not allow that me. would
1: not let me no. do it. Yeah.
2: And so he just happened to run up against... Somebody who... One, or if not two, I mean, Philip is... Call it one and a half. Yeah, because <laughs> Philip is just... Jesus. Um, one person who didn't have that in them. Right. That did not have that same sort of moral code where murder was just wrong. You didn't do it.
1: Okay. So then we're coming back to Clarence Darrow here. I mean, Darrow (laughs) argued the combination of these things, right? It was partially Nietzsche, it was partially too much privilege, Mm -hmm. and it was partially just nature. Yes. Like this sort of biological determinism of Brandon was missing something.
2: I mean, Darrow did his job. That's what Darrow's job was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. He wasn't trying to get them off. He was trying to save them from the death penalty.
1: Right. He was saying it was wrong to kill them. So
2: that I'm actually fine with that argument because I'm anti-death penalty. So (laughs) (laughs) that's fine. I think they got Life plus, like, 99 years. Yes, or they did. So I'm fine with that. But, yeah. So, yes, I think it takes a certain type of person would receive that information and say, this is how I'm going to operate in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, something already has to be sort of inherently off balance to do that. The more sort of arguably benign thing is, like, okay, well, they also teach, like neoliberalism, and we can talk about how that has destroyed the planet, right? So it's like, you know, and people go out and they do that. They act
1: accordingly to neoliberalism. I mean, there's no doubt that, like, professors have a lot of power yes, over young minds, absolutely. and some of
2: them do and not use it responsibly. And things, right? And the, the, their students go on to be in positions of power, and, and their decisions are informed by, you know, things that they have learned. The degree of which it destroys varies, but You know, you can make an argument, there are lots of things that people learn, and it goes on to lead to the death of millions of people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What was that? I didn't quite hear that. Something about the deaths of millions of people? Yes. I don't don't know who you're thinking of there. You
2: know, I took some classes from folks who were just like, "Uh, you're very (laughs) pro-war. So,
1: yeah. I do like how the end of the movie plays out. It's not logical, because Jimmy Stewart, (laughs) instead of going to the phone and calling the police... He shoots outside the window. He opens the window and fires shots.
2: I actually like that, though. That's
1: that's what, what I'm saying. Go ahead, you go...
2: I like it because we've been in a like they've been in a sort of bubble for the whole film because the windows are closed and you know, you've just been in this sort of basically one room for the most part with them and then that opening of the window seems to almost like let all the pressure out of that room and brings the inside the outside in.
1: And it's also reestablishing the social contract Mm -hmm. because what what we then hear is the voices of all the neighbors, right. are think, were that gunshots. I think that was gunshots. Somebody might be hurt. Let's call, call the, the police. police. Yep. And it's like bringing society back mm-hmm. into that apartment mm-hmm. where they have tried to create this little hermetically sealed right. bubble of outside privilege. of
2: the laws of yeah. society. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Even though logically it makes, it makes no absolutely sense no sense that he does. Well, and then that. he sits
2: down, and they're like, "Okay, well, I guess I'm gonna have a drink." And yeah, Brandon's just to like, "I'm gonna up. fix myself
1: another drink." And I'm just
2: like, uh, "Are you gonna shoot him?" <laughs> <laughs> just like I would shoot them. <laughs>
1: Okay, did you have any favorite moments in this movie we haven't talked about yet? There's a lot of good little moments in here.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, just, I think just as a piece of filmmaking, that scene that I talked about with Miss Wilson cleaning the off trunk. the, the yeah. trunk. It really, like, the suspense that that moment built was really powerful. Uh, so that may have been my favorite. And then that the last scene with the lighting, mm-hmm. I thought was really great.
1: Okay. Well, it sounds like you didn't hate this one. No, I liked it. Okay. I
2: thought it was good. Not again. Not my favorite Hitchcock, but I, I really did. I did enjoy it.
1: Okay. Because a few episodes ago, I listed a bunch of all the movies we'd watched so far, and mm-hmm. you know whether you liked them or didn't like them. Sure. I'm gonna, I'm gonna now get you to commit from here on out. This is a yay. At the end of each sure. episode, this is a yay. This is a yay. This is a movie people should watch. You were sure. glad you watched it. Sure. <laughs>
3: okay.
1: <laughs> And where should people look for my body?
2: Again, no body. The whole point is there. You can. You got to get rid of the body. There cannot be a body. So you need to have access to a big ass vat of acid, or you need to chop that shit up and feed it to some people. But you, there cannot be a body. Okay. I tell you about the time I played, we did this performance of uh, The Telltale Heart. (laughs) And I was the protagonist. I guess he wouldn't be a protagonist, but. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, He was my protagonist.
1: You were the murderer. I was the murderer. Okay, that's. Uh, Typecasting.
2: Yes. But we improvise a little bit, and I made <laughs> fake body parts. Like, I I took some pajama pants and, like, stuffed them with um, newspaper so that they were Wait, how, like... Wait, how
1: old are we talking here? This
2: is junior high. Junior high. Okay. Um, And so it's like, oh, the beating of the heart when he's at the end of the book and yeah. he's, like, going crazy and he's, like, pulling up the planks. And then I threw the body parts out into the <laughs> Totally off book. Like, totally not in book. the novel at all. No. <laughs> but it was fucking amazing.
1: So you were not one of those directors who thinks, you know, what you don't right. see is, Exa- is No, no, scarier. No, no. You no. wanted them to see. I wanted to
2: freak the shit out of them. <laughs> and I just threw body parts into the audience. And it was so good. But so, otherwise, I am very much get rid of the body, do not keep the body. But it makes for a, a good show. <laughs>
1: Okay, I think we're done. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Unenthusiastic Critic. Nakia, just today, as we record this, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi signed articles of impeachment against Donald Trump, charging him with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The trial is expected to begin in the Senate next week, which it would seem to me makes this a good time for us to watch a movie with a much happier ending than the one we're expecting from the Trump impeachment.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Alan J. Pakula's All the President's Men from 1976.
2: Okay, that should be depressing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not as depressing as contemporary life. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at UnaffiliatedCritic.com, follow us on Twitter at Critic and subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. In any of these places, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. So, I wanted to circle back to a conversation we had at the beginning of the episode. That's never a good idea uh in in our in our opening discussion on murder mm-hmm. you explained how you were not personally prone to murder mm-hmm. because you were a pisces yes is that right yes- mm-hmm. okay
2: We're you know a water sign we're very peaceful. <laughs>
1: And you said, I wonder if they, you know, did a study of this, what the common astrological signs mm-hmm. of most murderers were.
2: This is not going to land in my favor, <laughs> is it?
1: So I got curious about that. <laughs> and lo and behold, you were not the first person to wonder about it. Okay. Uh, I found an article on Bustle, written by Carolyn Steeb, called, These are the most common Zodiac signs among serial killers. <laughs> Bustle created a list of the 25 biggest serial killers of all time Mm -hmm. and looked at their star signs. Do you want to make a prediction about how that came out?
2: Well, if we're circling back... Then that means that I was wrong, and Pisces is like number one serial killer.
1: Steve writes, topping our list of notorious serial killers was rather surprisingly the typically sweet and dreamy Pisces. See,
2: but you see, typically sweet and dreamy.
1: Uh-huh. do you see topping the list of serial killers?
2: Well, that's so. That's an anomaly. He's a. He was,
1: <laughs> I don't think so. He, he no. like
2: his moon was in the wrong place. This or
1: sign accounted for a whopping five out of the twenty-five killers they looked at. That's not. Yeah. Including big names like Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, Eileen Wornos, who's the woman Charlie's Theron played in Monster, oh. Donald Henry Gaskins, John Wayne Gacy, she, and Gacy Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker.
2: <laughs> but it's only five
1: out of that's right out of the twenty-five they yeah. looked at.
2: That's not that's all right.
1: <laughs> More than any other sign on the list. Oh well, that's unfortunate. Steve goes on to write Pisces, as mentioned above, is often referred to as the dreamer of the zodiac. This sign has a long list of positive qualities, including high levels of kindness, compassion, and intuition. But they are also known to be clingy, out of touch with reality, and self pitying. This is a setup. (laughs) While the sign's kindness and compassion clearly wasn't at play when it came to the lives of Raider, Wernos, Gaskins, Gacy, and Ramirez, it is interesting to consider why so many killers were born under the Pisces sign. Could it have something to do with the fact that they're often out of touch with reality? Any comment this on like that? This was like a
2: personal attack. <laughs> and this interview is over. There's no comment on that. Maybe it's like, here, here it is. Okay. Those are all white people.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Black do. Pisces yes. is a whole, is a whole other, black separate...
2: Pisces of color. We're, we're, we don't do shit like that. <laughs>
1: it's
2: white nonsense. Okay. It's white Pisces nonsense. <laughs> They're tainting the sign. There actually
1: aren't a lot of black serial killers. There
2: aren't a lot of serial killers of color, I don't believe. No. no. We don't do shit.
1: Now, I grant you, they basically... Hicked yes, 25 it's very, people this is not a of scientific of right
2: exactly. People size is you know,
1: this shit is skewed. And I and I looked it up. I'm a Virgo, so I looked it up. Uh, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, was mm. a Virgo, mm-hmm. as was Ed Gain, the murderer who inspired Psycho, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs.
2: See, That's worse, <laughs> that's worse than
1: mine. When police searched Gaines' house, they found a lot of interesting items, including a wastebasket made of human skin, bowls made from human skulls, a shoebox full of vulvas, and a belt made from human nipples. See, we
2: don't do shit like that. That's
1: that's the Virgo influence. We we're very meticulous. We don't do that. We. <laughs> we don't
2: do that.
1: <laughs> you just dress up as clowns.
3: Because <laughs> we're dreamers. Yeah. <laughs>